0: Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato podcast. Check out their website at Tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope, Stack, and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Ardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at NAGIndustries.com. I would also like to thank Ardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Ardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 Scalable Plate Carrier System, Segin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprig. And I'm Brent Stratton. Kevin and Cody, thank you for being with me today. Brent is a uh, very busy assistant chief, and so uh, he can't be here. So Kevin will be the sole representative of the hairless people on the podcast today. Cody and I both have full, healthy heads of hair, and so Kevin will have to represent himself uh, without Brent's help for, uh, for being here, and uh, Kevin's been on the podcast before. I really enjoy talking to Kevin. I like being around uh, people that are smarter than me, and I like how Kevin thinks, and uh, he's polite, like he's one of them, you know, he's from Canada, so he has to be polite. Uh, So, Kev, can you tell folks a little bit about who you are and where you're from before we get into uh, Cody's background and why we asked him to be here today?
1: Sure thing, man. So I'm uh, the commander of the uh, Lower Mainland District Integrated Emergency Response Team. It's a big mouthful. We're a full-time 63 officer, a multi-agency team, so we we don't have collateral duties, we're just a full-time SWAT team. Uh, roadside of the Vancouver, British Columbia, so just about three hours north of Seattle. Uh, I teach at the Canadian Police College, the Critical Incident Commander course, and uh, in my spare time, I do some writing. So I write uh, for law and criminology journals, and uh, recently for a few uh, trade publications as
0: well. Now, Cody, uh, you know Kevin. You've done some work with Kevin and his team before. So uh, Kevin mentioned uh, all the things that he learned and some of the lessons, and I know that you uh working for on Front you guys have been busy with law enforcement and so thank you for being here we really want to kind of highlight the work you've been doing kevin had some great lessons learned so that's why i asked kevin to be here with us but tell us a little bit about who you are and how did you end up uh here how did i end up here is
2: always the question so cliff notes version you know growing up i always wanted to be a cop so my dad's been a police officer for the last i think 26 27 years I'm 30 years old. So that's all I've ever known. Um, I'm up in Northern California. So I grew up with kind of my mentor, my hero in my house. I mean, this is back early 90s, where it was kind of epitomized to where law enforcement, it, they were in the spotlight in a, in a good way. And so that's what I always wanted to do. And it was really highlighted when I turned, when I was 14 or 15, where my dad's partner was killed in the line of duty. So the writing was on the wall for me. That's all what I've always wanted to do growing up. Now, sadly, I turn 18 years old and I'm like, every 18 year old out there, I'm doing a bunch of dumb stuff, hanging around with the wrong people. And I'm actually playing uh, football in college when I ended up blowing out my knee. And at that time, I'm, I'm kind of lost, you know, my why, my purpose and all that goes out the window and I'm just getting into a lot of trouble. Luckily at that time, I had some very influential people in my life, people that were in the military, specifically in the Marine Corps and in the SEAL teams who were actually reaching out to me. And it was the first time I realized the concept of perspective, because there I am literally complaining about not being able to play a sport. And these guys are losing people overseas, and they're asking me how I'm doing. And I really take that with me now, because, you know, even today, I tend to complain a lot, especially since I have kids. I complain about things that I can't do or things that I'm not able to do. And often in comparison to what other people are doing, it's, it's nothing like my problems are actually just inconveniences in comparison to what other people are going through. So after those conversations, it was just kind of like, what am I doing? Like, I'm literally wasting my life and I have this opportunity in this game we call life, like everybody does. And I was wasting it. So with that new mindset, talking to these guys and seeing what they were doing, it was very impactful. And I was like, shoot, like, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to make a difference. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps. In 2010, with the intent of, hey, you know what, if I spend four, five, 10, 20 years, whatever I decide to do, if I could potentially save one mother, one father, one brother, sister from receiving that knock on the door, talking about how they lost a loved one from overseas and my enlistment was going to be worth it. So that was my intent. That was my why. So I enlisted in the infantry. Um, I started off on the East Coast out in Virginia, um, part of a a unit out there called the FAST team, which stands for Fleet anti terrorism Security Team big long fancy word for what I was told to be like hey you're the SWAT team for the Marine Corps and I was like cool SWAT team like that's badass and found myself on my first deployment to Guantanamo Bay Cuba while my friends are going to Afghanistan and for six months you're doing 18-hour guard post rotations watching a fence the same fence every single day waiting for Cuban asylum seekers to hop over so that was my first taste of of the Marine Corps and honestly I was I was pretty pissed it's not what I wanted to be doing and that's when I soon realized how contagious my attitudes were as an individual, because there I am in this leadership position and people are looking at me and I'm not believing in the mission. I'm not believing in the why. I'm starting to question a lot of things. And I started to see everybody else do that around me. Again, you know, Marine Corps, it's uh, you have some influential people and they're able to talk to you in certain ways. So I soon learned that wasn't an appropriate attitude to have. And I quickly shifted And then found myself on kind of a foreign relationship building tour. So the next 12 months, you know, we're traveling all over the world to Korea, Japan, Israel, Spain, working with our foreign allies, um, working with the Israeli Defense Force, Republic of Korea Marines, Royal Spanish Marines. And it was at that time, I'm 19, 20, and I'm learning firsthand what leadership looks like and what it does not look like from a U.S. perspective and also from a foreign perspective, which is really unique because I'm really moldable at this age. You know, I'm finishing up this deployment, and at the time, I'm actually in Rota, Spain. where four deployed there, and uh, during this time frame, you know, 2011, 2012, a couple embassies were attacked around the world. One specifically was Benghazi, where Ambassador Stevens was killed, and myself and the group I was with. We found ourselves there about six hours later after, after the embassy was burned down to the ground, and those individuals lost their life. And, you know, I got there 12 days after I turned 21, and so it was very unique, the position I was put in to, be in charge of people um, and their day-to-day lives and operations where basically we're just doing defensive static positions while they're building new embassy where we stood so I was really thankful for that time finished up in Virginia and then I pushed off and got the good deal to go out to Hawaii Um, finished up with second battalion third marines out there and at the time I'm hitting my five-year mark I'm a sergeant so I'm a platoon sergeant in charge of 35 guys and at the time I All I wanted to do was kind of be a shooter. I wanted to kick in doors. I wanted to blow stuff up. And I find myself just in the office doing paperwork and a bunch of stuff I didn't want to be doing. So the writing was kind of on the wall at that time point. This is 2015, almost 16. So I decided to get out with the intent of going back into law enforcement because that itch was always there. That was the whole why in the very beginning. So I was actually in backgrounds up here with Sacramento County Sheriff when I had a member of Echelon Front who I've known my whole life, uh, JP Donnell, reach out to me. And he actually asked me to come see Echelon Front's training. And, uh, you know, honestly, being 25, fresh out of the military, uh, I think the world owes me everything. And I was quick to learn that the world actually owed me nothing. So I sadly blew him off a couple of times. Um, And I call them valid excuses, but they're still excuses. I was graduating college. My first son was born and I had some family stuff going on. But eventually I find my way out there to uh, an FTX for Echelon Front, which stands for field training exercise. Basically, it's a hands-on, practical application. And as we're out there, I'm listening to the team from Echelon Front, JP, and other instructors talk about these leadership lessons learned in the military in combat and in training. And as I go out there, I'm like, oh, "Man, this stuff's awesome! Like, this is super relatable. Like, I this is just like being back in the military." Now, if we were out there working with a police department or a fire department or first responders, because those two worlds stay closely aligned, it would have made a lot more sense. Would have clicked a little easier but we're out working with a gas and electric company. You got a bunch of people that didn't want to be there. You had these older generations who I've been doing this for 25 years. You can't change me. And I I'm sitting there. I'm like, damn, well, do you guys really do this for a living. But I honestly, I was blown away at the impact that was delivered by JP and the team, you know, after six hours to hear these individuals say there's no way to change me. And at the end of the day, them standing up and saying, Hey, you know, the last 20 years I sucked as a leader. And that's not us saying that that's them coming to that realization on their own. And I was blown away. And at the time I'm trying to weigh my two options. because I'm still in backgrounds and JP's like, Hey man, we have a full-time spot if you want to come on board to to support. And so I was like, man, I I can't pass up this opportunity. So that was January, 2019. And so now I'm the director of those field training exercises along with our first responder training coordinator. So if I'm not out running companies or departments through our field training exercise, I'm out working with fire, police, EMS, military, you name it. Um, Those are kind of my two things that I spearhead here at Echelon front and been kind of a crazy ride for the last three years
0: that's pretty awesome and uh those principles translate right they they translate to anything you do in life it doesn't have to be military or law enforcement so that's pretty cool that you had that opportunity and had those people in your life so before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what that does what echelon front does let's talk about how you were swindled into going to our brothers up north and uh, into the great state of Canada. First of all, do you are you a hockey fan? Am
2: I a hockey fan? Yeah. You know, I I know enough to get around and to hold the conversation, but if you're going to ask me stats and questions, I might have to. to get yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough.
0: I've never asked Kevin if he's a hockey fan because I I didn't want him having him to go public if he doesn't like hockey because then did would have to move.
1: <laughs> I'm just ambivalent towards it, man. I'm sorry, I'm not a
0: not a hockey all right. guy. Fair enough. Fair enough. I grew up playing hockey and, uh, but I'm not a hockey fan anymore. And uh, I was a horrible hockey player, but I did love it. Uh, but that's like any sport. The things you like about it are the same. It doesn't matter what sport you play. Uh, so I, I just never asked you that, Kevin, all these times we've hung out and talked, I never asked you if you were a hockey fan. So.
1: And then I'm happy to reinforce almost every other Canadian stereotype except that one. So.
0: All right. All right. We'll, we'll stick to the regular Canadian stereotypes. So, uh, Cody, you've you've traveled around all over the world, but as far as working with law enforcement and people in general, right, because law enforcement is really just people with a specific job. So what are some of the trends or challenges you've seen that kind of universally apply? You know, Kevin and I have talked a lot about challenges we have here in California. He has there in uh, Canada and in my experiences traveling around the country a little bit Ben. we're you know we're all dealing with people we all have very similar problems but what what are some of the lessons you've learned from talking to folks and and some of those things that you continually have to address yes sir
2: and i love that you said that hey we're just talking about people because that's the number one thing we get asked like well hey we're not in the military like how does this relate and you can see the correlation between law enforcement and military there but i mean you're talking about people and if you actually think about what leadership is, it's just the ability to positively influence another person towards a common goal. So it's, you're working with people, you got to communicate with them. That's all it is. So there's no real unique way around it, whether you're corporate America or whether you're a first responder, all these problems are the same because, well, all of them deal with people and interactions that we have. But as far as I'd say, universal issues from the first responder space, specifically law enforcement, you know, it is interesting when I'll, you know, one day I'll be in Florida and the next day I'll be in Louisiana and the next day I'll be in California to see a lot of alignment and a lot of overlap in the issues. Sure. There are some uniqueness in terms of, um, the types of people that they deal with, or, you know, the laws that encompass that state, those things might differ, but traditionally what I've seen the last two years running this first responder segment is that leadership training is kind of lacking throughout. And I saw this in the military. I see this now where pretty much you don't get leadership training until the day the day that you're promoted. I know, Kevin, you kind of talked about it a little earlier. And that's that's it's shocking and it's scary to even think about. I mean, if you're not formally trained to be a leader and you just get put in a position, like you're gonna have to learn the hard way what works and what does not work. And I know potentially people say, Well, you know, we have like a mentor system and you can look and learn from people around you and I always ask the question like well what if you have a what if you have a crappy mentor and you have someone that's terrible and showing you not what to do and making all the wrong mistakes and you don't know what good looks like and you have all these bad habits that you're looking after that's just going to steer you down the wrong path so I think universally this the leadership in itself I mean once you get some stripes on your sleeve or some brass on your collar you go to a formalized school but even those formalized schools, you're talking about like, Oh, I'm going to Kevin, you're going to be promoted. Cool. You're going to go for four days. And then after that, you're a leader now and go forth and do things like, that's crazy. It should be leadership as a skill, just like everything else. It is, it's a perish perishable skill. Just like if you want to be more proficient shooting your handgun, what do you got to do? You got to go to the range. You got to get better. You got to constantly work at it. That is the same way with leadership. It's not a, you know, I just give you a shot, and then here you go. Hominus Dominus, your leader. It is something you have to work for, work towards, and work through every single day when you're put in that position. That should be your goal in itself. So, that is something that I've seen. I'm, I'm assuming you guys can relate to that as well from what you guys have seen across the spectrum. Along with the lack of leadership training, I think training in itself, um, there's a huge gap there. It's I've been kind of blown away at some of the departments in terms of. The standardized training that's set forth i mean obviously you you have the academy for the most part that everybody's going through and they get their wickets set they need to hit but once you are a full-pledged police officer you go through i've dealt with some departments i won't talk about geographically but the amount that they need to shoot their handgun it, it blows me away you're talking once a year they get to go shoot on the range and they have to pay for their own ammo and that is the only time they will shoot on a range think like, that's crazy So if they don't get better at doing it in those moments in time on the range, the one time a year, then they're going to have to learn firsthand what works and what does not work in a real life situation when life or death are on the line. Like that's not how it should be. And I know, you know, it's the budget, it's the money, it's the time, it's the equipment, it's the manpower, it's all these things. When it comes down to training, training doesn't have to be this formalized eight hour PowerPoint training day. I take my team out for two weeks and train them. Training should be every single day. If you can spend 10 to 15 minutes with your team every day, I know that sounds small, but if you think about it, if I spend time with Kevin every day for 15 minutes in a week, how much time has amounted? If I spend a month, a year, a year with 15 minutes with Kevin, how much training have I built up with him? It's going to be a huge amount, but oftentimes we utilize the excuses of it's the money, it's the manpower, it's the time. And I'll focus on time. We can talk about all those, but I'll focus on time in itself. We often find ourselves complaining about the lack of time that we have. Well, here's the thing. Time is something you can't control. All three of us here have the same amount of time in a day. You have 24 hours in a day. It's not that you don't have time to train. It's just not a priority. And if you think about that, and if you say that out loud, it's not a priority to train like that, that should tell you something better yet. If you go to your team, you can probably justify that. Hey, you know what, Kevin, I don't have time to train you and your team. But if I tell Kevin, my subordinates and my teammates, Hey guys, it's not a priority to train you for what you're potentially going to face throughout the day, throughout the month that just hurts to come out of your mouth. And you can relate that to anything that you do in life. I know I talked to you guys. I got four kids in the other room. I got a four, a three, a two, and a three-month-old. And if I come home after a couple iterations on the road where in September, I think I'm home like four days. And if I come home and I tell my wife that I don't have time to spend time with her and the kids, guess what? I can actually justify that because I am a busy human being. But if I come home and I tell her that it's not a priority to spend time with her and the kids, we all know how that conversation is going to go. I better get ready to sleep on the couch because that's not going to pan out well. So it's finding those moments in time. I think that we often justify our our ability not to act due to what's going on around us, whereas we should be looking at, hey, I have the opportunity every single day. I need to find these moments in time where informal training should take over. Because, yeah, is it cool to go to a SWAT school, how to breach, how to shoot long guns? Like, those are badass, but those take a lot of time. They take a lot of money. They take a lot of effort a lot of resources. You can take those moments in time where, hey, I know we just did this operation. Let's debrief. That's a form of training. Hey, you actually serve a warrant on the wrong house. Uh, how do you handle that conversation? Let's role play that. That's a form of training. Hey, let's build a fake house in the sand out of duct tape and role play how you're going to take down that house. That's a form of training. We need to find those moments in time where training can, can come to surface so that everybody around us can leave. Because actually I was just listening to another episode on yours, 33. It talks about training which I love that one with Jeff Feltz training is an interesting beast. Cause oftentimes we find ourselves saying, Hey, you know what? I mean, regardless of the training, my dudes, my team, they're just going to step up and be ready. Like they're going to rise to the occasion. And I think everybody here can agree. There's like 1% of people like living medal of honor recipients that are going to rise to the occasion. But typically what people do in chaotic, stressful situations is they fall back to their level of training. And that training is everybody's responsibility on the team. It's not the boss. It's not the chief it's not the lieutenant it's not the captain it's it's ours it's our responsibility to train ourselves and train our teammates we shouldn't be waiting for other people to do that that's part of our job and responsibility because at the end of the day when people make these mistakes and you hear all these things go on in the news and all these things go wrong it falls back to three things it falls back to complacency falls back to a lack of leadership and it falls back to a lack of training and all three of those we can actually control those are things we can actually control so no, know i'm going off on a tangent but i I love when I get to talk about this stuff, especially with you guys. Leadership training, training in itself, and obviously the two big ones, which everybody in the world knows is retention and recruitment. And I think what I've seen to be best practice for those two things, retention, if you want people to stay, you have to show, show them that you care. If people are bought in, if people know that their leadership cares, if people have the ability to get promoted, if they have the ability to – have control over their own destiny, then people are going to want to stay. But when people don't see that, when they don't see that their leadership is bought in, if they don't get ownership, if they don't get buy-in, then of course they're going to want to leave. And that recruitment piece, which is the national question that everybody's trying to figure out, recruitment's not going to be handled in a day. That's something that we need to just get on the table right now. That's what people think. Like, hey, I can just write this up and this is what we're going to do and it's going to be solved tomorrow. Recruitment retention is a campaign and it's going to take a long time. Recruitment It should start, you know, in the cities and the people that you work with every single day. It should start with the with the populace, the civilians that everybody works with, because if the mentality of the civilian populace is, you know, I hate cops. I don't like law enforcement like it's a shock that those people down the road don't want to become cops. That just makes sense. Now, if the mindset is, hey, you know what, Kevin pulled me over, man, I that actually wasn't that bad of an altercation, or you know what, Kevin came and helped my team, uh, helped save save my residents, whatever the case may be, those, those positive interactions with the human, with the civilian populace, that's when things might start to change. And honestly, it's just like one step in the right direction. And over time, you start with kind of the younger generations, who those are the people where we're probably going to recruit from. They have this mindset of, Hey, you know what, what those guys do, they actually make a difference. What they do is awesome. I would love to do that. Like that's, that's a place where we should start with. And I've seen that be beneficial in some areas across the U S where I've talked with chiefs where they're really integrated into um, college football programs or colleges in itself, where they have a one-way communication where everybody on the football team has a phone number of one cop and they have, They have one-on-one mentorship and the coaching staff, they work with all the brass. And it's this unique relationship where they've seen firsthand a lot of these football players who don't pan out to go on to the next level. Guess where they want to come to? They want to come back and be a cop. And it's just little moments in time like that where you're able to make positive interactions on the people you work with or work for that might make the difference around the road. Is that gonna solve everybody's problem? No, is it gonna solve it tomorrow? Absolutely not. But we have to start somewhere and what better way than to start on those younger generations who potentially we're gonna recruit from down the road.
0: You're, you're absolutely right. My experience and I know Kevin's experience and a lot of folks that I talk to, uh, we do a lot of stuff in law enforcement by osmosis. And especially when it comes to mentor programs. And you and I were talking a little bit about uh, Placer County and uh, recently retired uh, Sheriff Bell. And uh, they have a mentorship uh, program there that I think they did a really good job on integrating a bunch of different kind of s- staff employees with deputies and civilians and custody. And they do they do this little leadership development thing in their first 18 months of being there. They do projects and homework and you know all that stuff. and then they have to present at the end a kind of a career plan about their life to their fellow classmates so they can support each other and these are people that may not work again together for the next five years you know you'll run into each other but they're in different sections of the organization so i kind of asking him about that one day and he said he said hey man let me tell you what the biggest benefit of this is his biggest benefit is me as a leader these people I don't get a lot of interaction with I'm immediately demonstrating that I care about them. I'm immediately demonstrating that I'm investing in them early in their career. These people haven't done anything for me yet. They got hired and they're doing a good job, but it's not like they're my best friend or they've come up through the ranks of me. I'm investing in them. He goes, that's the first thing I get. The second thing I get is I'm reinforcing those values of our culture that are important to us. And then I'm building these people as they go throughout their career. They will always have that group of people they went through this class with. And that's going to reduce friction points when these units and divisions start competing or do things that have ripple effects on each other. They'll be like, hey, man, you know what? I know her. I'm just going to make a call and we'll sort this out right now instead of becoming a big deal. And I I, I, I saw so much value in a systematic approach to that, right? He built a system to reinforce that. I've never experienced anything like that in my career <laughs> and uh, and. So I thought that was pretty impressive, but I, I think we, we all have good intentions of mentorship programs, but when you really look at how they do them, it's not that they don't work, they work, but they, I think they could be a lot more efficient. Same thing with leadership development and law enforcement, wholeheartedly agree, I've never been in the military. Some of my mentors in life uh, were very successful in the military and when they went to the war colleges and the different uh, classes, they would get a reading list like here's six, seven, eight, ten 10 books you have to read before you show up in class the next day. And then that class could be a week, two weeks, a month, two months. They're going to make sure that you have that, that doctrine down and that you demonstrate that. In law enforcement, we take those same principles of managing conflicts and then we give you an eight, 10, 12-hour class measured by how much time we put you in a seat. And then we say, go manage this event that you may only see in your entire career two times and we wonder why we have problems. So uh, whole, wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, that being said, Kevin, you uh, you kind of were, were thrust into your position, very similar experience to me, and you reached out to develop uh, yourself because uh, I did not have the amount of responsibility that Kevin has. I worked in a small agency, a couple hundred thousand people in my city, collateral SWAT team, uh, busy enough that I learned some things but not 300 callouts a year or 200 call-outs a year. So Kevin, what, what's your experience with that, with, the, with leadership development and, and, um, and mentoring? Yeah,
1: I think Cody described exactly what my situation was. So I took over command of my team like two and a half years ago and immediately realized like it didn't take long that I was out of my depth. And you got to think, like, I came back to the team, like I was an NCO on the team, and when the old officer in charge left, the guys actually went to his boss and said, hey, we want Kevin to come back because I'd left the team and, and promoted on. So they wanted me back. And my leadership skills were lacking to such a degree that even though that was the case, they wanted me back. It's like every meeting we had, I was met with crossed arms and sort of scowls. You know, operationally, we were very, very successful, but it was just like this default defensive, just constant friction. And every little change that I, you know, tried to impose and, you know, these are my, my early days things like, I'm, you know, I'm getting the new sheriff in town and I'm, I see these problems and I'm going to fix them. I didn't have the skills to, 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 to make them happen. And I would go home just like exhausted and, and like, like, I'm literally in my dream job. Like I've literally wanted this job my whole life and I, ha- I kind of hate it a little bit. You know, I like what I get to do, but I, but I hate it. How do I get to do, like, how am I going to survive any number of years kind of thing? And so I originally went to, um, and of course I, you know, I'd, I'd heard of Jocko, I'd read his book, but, and I knew they had this thing called the extreme ownership Academy, but I didn't really know what it was. I finally went to, to, to one of the first responder sessions, which is quite similar. It's like a zoom call and there's, you know, depends how many people are on and you get to actually do some Q and a, they'll do a little presentation, you know, for 20 minutes and then some Q and a, I was like, man, this is, this is pretty good. I know what I'll do. I'm going to sign up for this secretly and I'll sort of secretly closet train it. And then I'll learn secret leadership moves that I can then use to, you know, to manage my guys better. And I mean, that's a very, you know, kind of white belt mentality of things. Um, But it kind of worked a few things. I'd like, oh, you know, I I learned a few things and had some initial success, but I started to peter out really quickly. And then I sort of transitioned to the fact that this was getting really successful for me as I learned as I learned, it wasn't about learning leadership moves to use on people. It's more about learning leadership moves to move, to use on yourself, to adjust your own mentality, to get, to get, to get better success. But we actually signed about half our team up for it. And you talked about the mentorship program. Like I would love to have a mentorship program. You know, my replacement is in my unit right now. How I don't have the skills though, to train that person right now, because I don't have the skills. So we actually put it out and 30 of our 60 guys signed up for this training. And I think you talk about it there's two major deficiencies in law enforcement in our, in our, in our leadership training. One, we don't do it. And two, when we do do it, it's like we impart secret knowledge to the one guy who's going to be in charge. And I think that's a bit of a trap. And if you train it as a team, like Cody's talking about, even these little 15 minute section, I, I see there's two really big benefits. One is it creates accountability. So, you know, if, if, I'm the only guy who goes to the Extreme Ownership Academy and I know that I'm supposed to take ownership over, you know, maybe the mission didn't get accomplished. And I come to the meeting, I say, you guys didn't understand, uh, you, you guys didn't understand that the, the commander's intent of this mission. If I'm the only guy who went to that training, they're gonna say, you know, we're gonna have a bit of a battle there. But if they went to the training too, I know I'm not gonna get away with that because they know that I know. That they know that I should be saying, you know, guys, I failed to communicate with the commander's intent was in this properly. How can I do this better? Like, what more do you need me to do? So I think there's a lot of accountability there. It's like when you go on a diet by yourself, you know, and you don't tell anyone. It's like no one notices you eat cheesecake because no one's gonna say anything. But if you know, if Cody and, and Mark Sniff and were all on a diet together, we've got our chat group, you're gonna call me out on my stuff, right? So I think it's accountability. And I think the other big thing is is predictability. So one of the things is is I realize that leadership is not. A set, a way of using moves on people, but it's rather a way of a group of people interacting with each other, right? Because there's like leadership up and down the chain. And my guys start learning how to lead me. They like, I need them to lead up the chain so they know, you know, how am I going to respond to things, how to frame things properly. I know what to expect. It's kind of like doing CQB, right? It's like if I just Leroy Jenkins the room, you know, and no one's going to know where I'm going, it's actually going to be ineffective and dangerous. But it's when we know, oh, you know, the I'm the number three guy. I know what one and two are doing. So now I know what job my job is as number three and number four guy can then predict my movements. It's like that's when you start getting huge return on investment. So in my view, like leadership training eight needs to be done and it needs to be a team sport.
0: There's but no like, way Cody doesn't have anything to say about that. I just want to add one thing. I know
2: Kevin talked about it. Hey, going through this training, it creates this sense of accountability. I love that you talked about it's, it's self-accountability. It's not that, hey, Marcus goes through the training with me. He's like, hey, Marcus, I know you were in there and you didn't do this. That, that's not what you talked about, which I love because that's what we tend to gravitate towards. We tend to gravitate towards, especially military, especially for law enforcement is I need to hold my team accountable. I think accountability should be 0.1% of the time is what we should do because if you're having to hold people accountable, if you're having to say, hey, Marcus, you didn't do this. Now this is going to happen. Then that means you've made a bunch of mistakes leading up to that point. So I think Kevin, you're spot on the fact that you go through this with other people creates a sense of self accountability. So people can hold
1: you accountable. That's an awesome spin to put on it. I love that. I and mean, sometimes I find that, you know, if you know, if I know, you know, it's like, it and that, and we have that, that positive peer pressure, it just gives me that, like, because this stuff's not easy, man. Like, something will happen on the team. You know, a guy won't make his training hours. And I want to, I want to come down on him like, man, why didn't he, this guy make his training hours? And why didn't you make sure he was there? And it's like, well, he didn't make the training hours because I didn't monitor his schedule enough. And I actually tasked him to be at three different places at once. And so he went to, he managed to get two of those three things done, but it's like, it's actually on me. Right. But my initial inclination is always to lose my temper. It's always to be impatient. It's always to do those things. And I find that self-accountability, just because everyone knows how we're supposed to interact with each other, it just gives me that that little advantage that I need to to act the right way. Or the, the it, it's it's like counterintuitive sometimes. It's just not what I want to do. It's it's hard. I hate it sometimes, but it's like the right thing to do.
0: Because I don't work with you, I don't I don't see that part of Kevin. He's always so polite. You know, I mean, once in a while, I can see in his eyes that I said something that he was like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." But most of the time, he's like super polite and hides it. So it's interesting to see that side of you. You know, one thing you both talked about is accountability, right? And so often in law enforcement, we think accountability is discipline and, and it's not discipline. It's discipline and disciplining all of ourselves to the standard and, and for the team. It's not discipline always is I'm, my rank is holding you accountable for the discipline area. And one thing, I liked, uh, and I know Kevin uh, has talked about this before, is we're holding each other accountable to a standard. So we're, we all have different roles on a team. My role might be a lieutenant. My role might be a sergeant. It might be a team leader. It might be a, a door kicker. It can be a sniper. I have a role. I'm accountable to the team for that role. But we all help each other in that role. And, and I need, as a leader, I need help all the time with that what am I missing? What's my blind spot? You, you know I'm good at this, but hopefully the people that I work with that are maybe subordinate in rank are better at the things that I'm weak at and building, building those teams and that culture, which sounds like a byproduct of, hey, instead of me selecting three people for leadership development, let's develop as many people as we can because they'll be better no matter where they go. Is that kind of where you were a little twist on what you were saying, Kevin? Yeah, man, that's exactly it. It's like that.
1: It's that humility and that forming relationships, right? And Cody, you can correct me because I'll probably say this wrong, but you know what? Two of the key aspects of relationships is trusting each other and influencing each other. So if I'm, if I never let my sergeants influence me, that is a sign of a flawed relationship and and then we'll get it backwards, right? And they they won't let me influence them. And that's when we get, you know, just that that defensiveness that I'm sure, you know, every law enforcement guys run into right like I want something done and the guys don't want to do it and and you just get into you know at at loggerheads so and then it's like that it's that humility that's that is required if you're going to let someone influence you
2: so we talk about four pillars of a relationship so hey if I want Marcus to listen to me I have to allow myself to listen to him if I want Kevin to trust me I got to trust him If I want Kevin to respect me, I got to show him respect. And then lastly, all three of those come together. If I want the ability to influence another person, which is leadership, I have to allow myself to be influenced by them. So all four of those things are very counterintuitive. It's against human nature, against what we were born to be, because it's very easy to sit back, especially in what you guys do and say, hey, you know what? My respect is just earned, or you got to earn my trust, or hey, I'm your boss. Like you just need to listen to me. Those are the wrong methods that we should try to be utilizing. We have to... We have to return the favor on all four of these aspects so that in the end, we can actually do our job as a leader, which is to support our team. So I love that you talked about those, Kevin.
0: And that kind of builds a little bit on that that culture that I definitely grew up in in my law enforcement uh, career. I wouldn't say that it's extreme, but it's still there, and especially depending upon the organization and the generation and all that. But that's, that's the... Uh, I have the rank and therefore I'm in charge and not the shared responsibility, which turns around and centralizes command and centralizes a lot of these decisions. And we see this obviously a very uh, tactile example is tactical operations because they make the news, they're recorded, but it could be a use of force, but it, it happens throughout an organization, even the things we don't get to watch on the news. But the the, the concept of decentralizing command and pushing some of those decisions down. <clears throat> and uh, at Cato, we talk a lot about that on how do I avoid... Being overwhelmed by events in these crisis situations that maybe you don't face very often, especially novel events, something you've never seen before. But in, in reality, it should be just the culture of the organization. And I know, uh, Kevin, this is something that's near and dear to your heart, and that you worked on this with Cody about. It's easy to say, and it's easy to listen and read it in the books and listen to the podcast about decentralized command. But here's something that you worked on since you've been in your leadership position, right, Kevin? And how, how did that, or the nuts and bolts of that? And give me an example of like when you were an operator, what that looked like, because it was very similar to, we had, we used to have to ask a lot of questions before we did every little segment. And now uh, when I was, say, a, a lieutenant on the team, there's only a few things that I even would get on the radio and say or approve. And that was just dictated by law and procedure.
1: Yeah, so this is something, if there has been one big takeaway that I can actually, I can point to lots of things on my team right now that I've derived directly from uh, Extreme Ownership Academy, this was probably one of our earliest successes that we've then built on. So Cody talked about, you know, doing that repetitive training, it's like learning a jujitsu move, right? It's like you learn the move and then you perfect the move and then you perfect the move and then you learn a counter to the move and then, you know, you learn a setup to the move. This is one of those things that I couldn't have done it in one go over the last year and a half uh, that we've been doing the program. This is an area we've had a a ton of success. And I can tell you that we've had successful operations recently that would have been a failure if we hadn't instituted this a year and a half ago. So exactly like you said, Marcus, you know, SWAT operations, super high risk. And the incident commander feels a heavy burden because they are accountable for everything that happens. And one of my, you know, we're doing some interstate commander training and we're trying to explain how, that that it's okay to release some of this control. And the guy says, but I'm accountable for all this. So I have to retain all authority. And it's like, no, accountability and authority are are two different things and, and don't conflate them. If you conflate them, you're asking for trouble. And what I saw happening when I came up with the teams, it was exactly the same. And let's use an example of a search warrant service. You know, we're going to go execute a search warrant on the, uh, you know, on a house, you know, and we're going to do a container call out and there's surveillance cameras outside. Um, it used to be when I was on the team, if we wanted to knock those surveillance cameras out with a 40 mil, it'd be like radio back to the command post, you know, Oscar Charlie, you know, got surveillance cameras. We want to knock those out. The instant commander would then, you know, assess it, make a decision. This always annoyed me a little bit because it, it, in my mind, it creates an illusion of control. The incident commander is actually not making any controlling much at all. I can see the camera. The incident commander can't, right? I can see where my members are. I can see where my officers are. I can see where they, where where the arcs are. My incident commander can't. I can see the backdrop. My incident commander. So why is the incident commander making those decisions? Actually, this actually occurred to me when I was asked to make that decision. I was now the incident commander. I'm like well, these guys have way more situational awareness than me. Why am I the one making this decision? Why do I feel like, like what magic decision-making formula am I using in my head that makes me feel like I'm making a better decision than than my officers would with much more information? And and it, 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 it occurred to me that what I was actually saying by saying this was, I don't trust you guys to make that decision. And it was actually saying, we didn't actually talk about this decision enough beforehand. I, maybe I didn't, you know, we didn't, discuss what your contingency plans are going to be if you resulted, you know, if you encountered certain things. So the result it does, I feel like I have to try to control everything. Um, and we had one byproduct of this is, and this was something I was very adept at when I was an NCO on the team is if you feel like you're being micromanaged, because that's what, when every decision has to go in the instant manner, you feel micromanaged, uh, SWAT guys learn to hide things. And they'll make, you know, just things will just kind of happen in the background. And maybe your SWAT guys are different than my SWAT guys, but like uh, they, they will find a way. I don't think SWAT guys are different anywhere in the world when it comes to that. <laughs> but but, the, but they'll, they'll make a way to make it happen. And now you've got a real problem because now mm-hmm. the commander's like looking at things. What are these guys trying to get away with that I don't know about? And the guys are saying, you know, he's always my commander. Just don't tell the boss this stuff. So they're, they're starting to hide information from you. And the inevitable result is you're going to get surprised by something and you're going to get surprised on something because you didn't decentralize command and you didn't decentralize command because you thought you were controlling the situation and it was an illusion the whole time. So you've got like no benefits, all negative. So what we did is we now just pre-brief files and we just pre-authorize certain things. You know, hey, if you need to knock out any surveillance cameras, go for it. If you have a dog come after you, you need to, and you need to, uh, you know, set off a DD, Go for it. like you know we brief our obviously like our, our most dangerous and most likely uh contingency plans and beyond that we just make sure that we have a really clear mission statement and a really clear commander's intent and my thought my my instructions listen guys to my ncos here's the mission you know we're gonna whatever we're gonna do and here's the commander's intent here's what's important to me in that mission if what you want to do is consistent with the mission and the commander's intent and it's within scope of your if your authorities then just go ahead and do it but brief me on your intentions so this was a key a key thing is tell me what you intend to do i'm and even sometimes i'm like oh there's a there's a slightly better way to do it i i would shut up and just let it happen because like an 80% plan instituted with 100% enthusiasm is better than you know my 100% plan that people don't agree with and i don't communicate properly and you know it doesn't match what's actually on the ground so i just shut up If it's consistent with the mission and in scope of authorities, tell me your intentions. Now we don't have information being hoarded or obscured from the commander, which is good because sometimes I need to de-conflict something for the negotiators or the investigators, or maybe there's some piece of information I failed to communicate to the team that now is going to be important. And and that intention might, might oh, you know, there's this piece of information you don't know and that'll change what they plan to do. If it's inconsistent with the mission or out of scope, then they have to ask for permission. That's how we now handle our decentralized command. And I try to push down absolutely as much decision-making authority as possible. And the rule we have is this, is who should make the decision is the person with the best situational awareness. So in the search warrant example, the person with the best situational awareness is the guy in the 40 mil who can see the backdrop, you can see the surveillance camera, can see where he is. If we're now in a hostage taking where the command post, we now have negotiators, you know, talking to the suspect, well, The assaulters on the the ground, they don't have that information. Maybe we've got analysts monitoring the guy's uh, social media. Maybe we've got some sort of intercept device that's installed. Maybe we've got, you know, there's other things. We've got investigators pulling up some some background information. Well, now who has better information? The the sniper on the ground or the commander? Oftentimes it's the commander. So in those kinds of situations, it makes sense for the commander to make the decision because I have better situational awareness. But that's where we talk about Uh, whether or not, I don't know if you guys use the same term, react authority versus command authority, who's going to make the decision. And we're just like super clear about it and who makes the decision is whoever has the most information and can make the decision in the, in the right amount of time for that decision. And the default is to push it as low as possible in the chain.
0: Yeah. I think you and I could talk about that for hours because until you were probably in that leadership role, you did not, you knew it, you You felt it, but you didn't feel it like you feel it when you're like, I am completely responsible for what happens and I have the least amount of control of everything that's going on, right? The two things I really love about what you said is, one is you frame the operation. As a leader, you have to frame that operation. You have to put out the commander's intent and the focus of effort. And and when you do that, you're going to clear up a lot of issues for yourself, especially when you push that the decision-making lower. And, and then I think something, I don't think we do well is we don't define the roles. We don't define roles. We don't define what our role is. We don't define what their role is. We do positions like sniper, less lethal, but I mean like, Hey, on, in this case, this is the elements decision, not mine as a commander, unless I see something that's going wrong. I can't see what you see. You're going to have to make this choice. And It's very interesting. Uh, when people don't look at it that way, what what they end up doing.
2: Decentralized command. I mean, that's the fourth law of combat that we talk about echelon front. It's the most impactful one we have it's relinquishing power to those that are actually doing the task. And the only question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to decentralized command is, Hey, can you be everywhere at once? And the answer is obviously no, but typically as an individual, our ego tells us that we can, and we can make all those decisions. A couple of things I wrote down that you guys were both talking about commander's intent the most important thing for decentralized command the what and the why that we're doing it i love that you talked about that 100 percent plan that that kevin you talked about which if we're honest with ourselves, there's no such thing as a hundred percent plan but we fall in love with that to the detriment of the actual operation and we always feel when we're the leader we have that position we have that experience we have that authority that we have the best plan out there and you actually have to ask yourself like who am i to dictate to my team if Kevin's going to breach. Why should I tell him what to do when he's going to actually do that task? All it is, it just feeds my ego. That's all it is. It's literally the only thing that gets in my way. And the ultimate goal for decentralized command is for my team to run the operation with me without, without me having to say a word like that should be the goal. You should be that silent leader because when you're that silent leader and you're not in the X's and O's, you're not telling people to shoot out the surveillance camera and not to deal with the dog. Those are tactical decisions. Those are X's and O's on the, on the actual ground. We should be looking strategic And if I'm not in the X's and O's and I can be out, then I can be talking about what Kevin talked about. Hey, talking to the negotiators, talking to my other assets, looking at a different perspective on, hey, in the next hour, I need to have this done. In the next six hours, I need to update this person, this person, this person. I can't do those things if I'm caught up in the X's and O's. If I'm caught up in the plan, I should want to release that power so that I can work on thinking strategic and everything that we do. Um, No, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff to unpack and decentralized command. It's it's my favorite law of combat that we have because it's, one of the hardest ones to utilize. It's it's a lot easier in, our, in the positions that we are to control and dictate and utilize centralized command. But if you utilize centralized command, then you'll find yourself in situations where everybody's coming to you to solve all their problems. And if you're solving everyone's problems, then you can't solve your own problems and the things that you actually need to get done as a leader.
1: I think one of the benefits of what Cody's talking about here is when we hyper-focus on the tactical aspect of the operation that, you know, that our, you know, that our uh, SWAT operators are actually doing, we're focusing on only one domain of risk. And that one domain of risk is physical risk, right? We don't want to make sure someone, we want to make sure someone doesn't get shot. Well, as an incident commander, we've got actually three domains of risk we have to worry about. There's physical risk, which is what is easy to see, but then there's investigational risk, right? So if we lose the evidence or if we get the evidence, but we have a constitutional violation and we lose the evidence in court, it's like, we might as well not even have been there. And the other is organizational risk, right? You know, if my officers do something without legal authority and they get fired or sued, like that's on me, right? If the organization gets sued, that's on me. Like there's, you know, if if we do something that ends up in the media and that erodes our our public confidence, which erodes our funding, like that's going to be on me. So by not focusing solely on that one dimension, I feel like it lets us look at all three domains of risk that we need to be worried about.
0: Yeah. I like that. That's a great point. And, uh, it's usually easier, especially because a lot of commanders will come from that tactical side. And that's the part we practice. I don't need to be part of that as the commander. That's not part of my role anymore. I want to prove those tactics, but that, that time was long before the event took place. If I'm worried about that. One thing we, we, we tend to see is, as a new leader, you're going to revert back to what you're good at and what you're comfortable with. So oftentimes in law enforcement and in California, that's like, I'm a lieutenant, but I'm really good at being a sergeant. I'm really good at leading that element, the tactic part, right? And so when I become a new leader, if someone hasn't defined that role for me and modeled that role for me, when I get a little bit nervous, I'm going to go back to what I'm good at. And that's someone else's job now that's not my job anymore. And, uh, you see that a lot with new leaders. It's like, Hey, you're getting in the weeds over here. Like that's, that's that guy's job. I know you were good at it, but that's not your job anymore. And, and transitioning that. So, uh, definitely, definitely hard to do. Um, a lot of times when you do it or your subordinate does it, you catch each other and have a little chuckle and try to fix it. Um, cause if I'm doing as a lieutenant, if I'm doing the sergeant's job, who's doing my job, you know, and so it has a ripple effect. Uh, Cody, tell us a little bit about more. We've kind of danced around it. We've given some great examples. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but tell us a little bit more about the online program that, you're, that you guys are doing for first responders or for law enforcement, and then more about kind of how you're going in the teams and like how Kevin signed up his team and kind of what the nuts and bolts of that look like.
2: Yes, sir. So in itself, Echelon Front has a bunch of different arms and pathways. One of the arms is the Extreme Ownership Academy, such so as our online learning platform. So typically, uh, twice or three times a week, they'll be just a, a topic kind of organized by someone on the team. Uh, typically, it'll be Jocko Leif or one of the other instructors and kind of what Kevin talked about earlier. They'll give like a 20 minute spiel on, hey, this is what we learned. This is how it applies to everybody on the call. So on the academy, you have those one or three times a week calls where you get to learn about a topic and actually have the Q&A with Jocko, with Leif or any of the instructors on the team. That's a byproduct. There's a bunch of certified courses on there. So the actual book, um, Extreme Ownership. So there's courses on there, one through 12, where you get to listen to the team, talk about it in a video setting. You have questions you're trying to answer and you're trying to apply it to what you do. You have that book on there. You have Dichotomy of Leadership, which is the second one, which talks about balance, which we could do a whole nother podcast on that one. But a bunch of certified courses on there, which you can actually take those courses, get uh, a credibly badge, you throw it on your LinkedIn, whatever the case may be. It's just the leadership training in a more formalized format. Um, and then the first responder section for the academy, we t- we do that once a month because the academy is is at a cost. We do one free Uh, first responder one a month, which we actually did it right before you guys. I did one with one of my colleagues, um, Dan Ziem, who's been a firefighter for 17 years, who's on my first responder team. So we do that once a month. In addition, if you don't want to do virtual, we'll do in person. So as I mentioned at the beginning, that's one of my primary focuses where I'm out working at police departments or fire departments. We'll all come in and depending on what they want, what the department wants, I'll come in for two hours, four hours, six hours, and each one is just a little more in-depth on what that looks like. And obviously the end goal is, hey, I finished talking. How do we apply this to what you guys do? What are the takeaways and implementation wise? How do we keep this in a sustainability model? Because as much as I love going to talk, the last thing I want is for me to leave and people like, cool, what's, what's next? Like, what do we do next? So our intent is to go in and share lessons learned, best practices amongst ourselves, military, first responders, all the corporations that we work with at Echelon Front, and then create a guide to where, hey, in the next three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, because we know that change takes time, how do we apply this? And how do we get this into kind of the culture for whatever industry that we're working with? So there's a bunch of different pathways that people can take in terms of echelon front. I mean, podcasts, books, online, in-person, you name it, we got it. Um, Our ultimate goal is to just get these lessons out to as many people as we can. That's, that's Jocko's intent. He wants to share as much as what he's learned in the military and the SEAL teams, what he's learned over the last nine years, a spearheading echelon front, how do we get this out to as many people as we can? So that's our intent. That's that's our why, our mission. So we're just happy to support anybody in any capacity.
0: One of the things that's often missing is, at least in my experience, is we'll have great people come in and talk and they're good leaders and they have great examples, but you don't always leave with a systematic approach where every day I know what I need to be doing. and um, And some of it's really just taking ownership of yourself right first and then moving on um in earlier in the podcast we talked a little bit about we, we listen about these leaders and, and our instinct is to be like well that guy over there definitely has this problem right and uh I love Jack Enter. uh Jack Enter is a southern uh veteran who was a police officer and a police chief and he wrote a book called Challenging the Law Enforcement Organization. I read that book and, and I thought, my word, he wrote this book about my organization. And uh, I've read it every year since I took a leadership position. And every year I learned something. One of my favorite things is everybody thinks they're a, everybody thinks they're a, an eight and everyone else is a four when they rate themselves. Right? I'm an eight, but that guy over there is a four. And he's like, we're all fours, man. Just let's get over it. We're all fours. We all got stuff we need to work on. And, uh, and it's true. That's just human nature. So uh, love, always remember that. I think something from, from Jack comes up at least once a month, some, some lesson, especially when you start applying, uh, Hey, let's look at ourselves first and, and and take that ownership. So uh, Jocko has turned that into a household name uh, and a meme you know, when, when your partner doesn't take extreme ownership, you're like, that's great, really good extreme ownership. You, you just blame me for the whole thing. Uh, so that means he's having an impact, right? So super glad that you were here and, and are able to help out law enforcement. And it's a, something that, uh, as an organization, Cato really cares about. We're great at, uh, managing projects. Uh, we're not doing great at, at building leaders. And, uh, in today's day and age, uh, since Kevin and I are similar in age, we, we saw chiefs that would make it, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 year chiefs. And now uh, in the state of California, chief averages about two years, maybe three, because someone needs to be the fall guy and someone needs to be, uh, you know, fired for it and they go to another organization. And so we're, we're struggling with even developing leaders, let alone finding someone willing to take on that kind of liability. And I hope that these kind of conversations, the ones you're having with corporations with, uh, you know, like you talked about earlier, uh, gas companies, electric companies, they're all people that we work for. And so recognizing these principles will only help our profession because we're going to have bad outcomes, even when we do everything right. And uh, we need to have leaders that'll step up and, and lead and tell people the truth and, That's a hard thing to do. Not so much in Canada; everything's great there. Just in America, those guys don't have any problems. They're just walking around apologizing to each other all the time. Had to take a shot at Kevin for just how polite he is all the time. He's probably (laughs) going to get even with me at the at the uh, Cato conference this year and just be mean the whole time. (laughs) Um, uh, anything else? Where where can folks go, Cody? Where Where can folks go to learn more about? the extreme ownership Academy and, and in particularly the stuff you guys are doing for, for law enforcement and first responders.
2: Yes, sir. So just echelonfront.com, all the kind of subheadings, all the arms are on there, the Academy. I mean, the FTX is that I talked about the first responder trainings, all of it's under there under the umbrella. So just echelonfront.com no need to get crazy and complicated with it. We, we try to keep it simple around here. So.
0: Well, thank you, man. Uh, Kevin, anything, any last words before we go? Yeah, I just want to thank Cody
1: and and the Echelon Front team. Um, Like, it was a big change for me. It was bad. Like, there's not many times when you have, you go to a course and it's actually transformative and it completely changes how you do business. But I went from, you know, I'm not going to make it. Like, I can't do this job to enjoying it and being far more successful and just things gelling on our team. Like, you you wouldn't believe. It's, It's a kind of before and after picture. And we've had, Greater, we were operationally very sound to begin with, but we've even been able to step that up significantly. So, Cody, like, thanks for you and all your team, man. I'm a huge fan of the program. Like, I kind of show from the rooftops. I I try not to fanboy too much about, uh, you know, the Jocko stuff, but uh, it's legit, man. So, I, I highly recommend it.
0: Transformative. So, you started the podcast with Leroy Jenkins and you're ending the podcast with transformative. That's what I love about you, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you both for sharing some lessons and uh, and being on here. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. And we want to kind of highlight that some of those lessons learned because none of the problems Kevin has are any different than any of the problems the rest of us have on our teams or in our organizations. And like Cody started off saying, this is these are people, right? We We've, if you're in a leadership position, then you've competed to say, I want to lead people. But even if you're not in a leadership position, you have the responsibility to lead up and and to be a contributing member of the team that you're on, no matter what it is that you've chosen to do. So, so thank you, Kevin. Uh, and thank you, Cody. I appreciate you being here.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.